Uh, and I'm going to introduce now uh, Rob Dixon, my partner in corporate, who's going to take us through our, our survey. It's a very long survey, but what we're going to go and do is just touch on some key highlights. And then um, William Dillon Leach will follow afterwards, and he'll just bring us through some of the uh, warranty and indemnity insurance trends that we're seeing. So without further ado, I'm going to hand over to you, Rob. Thanks. So hi everyone, um, thanks David for that. So I, I'm going to talk about our M&A um, trends study and to give a tiny bit of further background on what it is, we, um, I think everyone can talk about market trends but what we have done the last three years is look at actual negotiated positions in our own deals that we advised on. So what this study that I'm going to talk to you about now does is it looks at the deals over a 15 month period up to March of this year of 2019 that we advised on. So it's very much, rather than talking in the abstract about what, what is market, it actually looks at quite analytically what is market in our own deals um, and the percentages that come out of that. So as, as David says, I'll, I'll kind of focus on a few areas within that. Um, and I think it is for us it, internally, it's incredibly useful when we're in the kind of um, trenches on a particular deal trying to negotiate an issue just to kind of educate ourselves or to remind ourselves of exactly where a particular issue, whether it's whether caps are normal on an indemnity, that sort of thing, um, it's, it's, it's useful for that purpose, but also a lot of our clients have found this really useful as well. Okay. All right, so just to give you a, an idea, first of all, of exactly what this is based on, a lot of the deals that we advised on over that 15-month period I talked about, we would have acted on the buy side. We did also um, act on the sell side in some of them, as you can see, and in some instances we'd have acted for the lender providing finance. And that's really just to give you context. It's not a market trends point at all. David talked about source of funding. I think it's quite, um, I think some of our financial services colleagues are, are, are surprised by how many M&A deals we, it, it's not necessarily discussed. If we're on the sell side, for instance, where the money is coming from for a particular transaction, and, and for quite a few of these, we wouldn't have been aware, but I think existing cash is, is more than bank debt as a kind of, as, as, as a source of funding in, in, where we were aware of that, which might have been different at a point in the past. Percentage of shares acquired in these deals Again, just to clarify what we're talking about, we're talking about 100% transactions where we're buying, or our client, or, or the other, or, or we're selling all of the shares in a given company. That's what we're talking about. Private M&A, not investments, not minority stakes, really. And again, just to give you a tiny bit of context before we get into the detail on it, we are um, acting on deals across the different sectors. I think you'll see in this some of our, um, some of our, deals that are coming up repeatedly in things like in, in sectors such as consumer services and um, technology. I think year on year it seems to be at least a quarter of our transactions are in the tech space. Um, energy and natural resources, financial services and across the whole broad range of sectors we're seeing activity. Um, I think this is the first um, trend to really pause on and, and to look at for a minute is the purchase price adjustment mechanism that's used. So. Traditionally, I think you'd see on, on a typical M&A transaction, 
you would see completion accounts without a second thought having been used as, as the method of price um, adjustment or, or, or adjudication, I suppose. And traditionally, where it's completion accounts, you're talking about a, a cash-free, debt-free, normal level of working capital style deal. So you're saying as a buyer, when, you, when you're coming in to buy this business, we assume this, that we're going to pay 50 million for this business um, on the basis that there's no, you know, theoretically, that there's no cash in the business at closing, that there is no debt in the business on closing, um, and that there's a normal level of working capital. And of course, completion accounts can work in different ways. You could have a net asset adjustment. You could, it mightn't be cash-free, debt-free. You might allow for a level of debt staying in the business as you move on. But that's what completion accounts really is. And, and then following closing, you would have an adjustment around that where completion accounts are prepared as at the closing date. And if there's actually more cash in the business or, or more debt in the business than was expected, one, the buyer or the seller will make a payment to adjust on that. Um, what we've seen increasingly over a number of years is, and I think this is an international trend, it's not just in the Irish market, is um, a, a willingness to move towards the locked box. And I think it's something that a lot of clients are increasingly familiar with, even t talking to a number of people just before this session who are, who are in the midst of M&A processes where we're saying, yes, we're, we're using a locked box for, for, the, for the transaction. It's a more seller-friendly uh, mechanism. Um, and the reason it's more seller-friendly is with completion accounts, you are the buyer has there's an, an ability to adjust following closing. So with a seller with a leak with a lockbox which has a leakage mechanism in it, you're really fixing the price at a certain date prior to closing. So it's 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 not regarded as as buyer friendly, and I think that that that's reflects the way the market is. It's it's a little bit more seller friendly than it would have been a number of years ago. So. In terms of our own deals, the, the kind of interesting thing in some ways is that the completion accounts, in terms of these deals, it is still 64% of them. It is still the mechanism of choice, I suppose. But we've actually seen the lockbox go up within the, the, the three years that we've done this study. That 18% is higher than, than it was. And I think we're, we're certainly seeing it as, as a more common thing all the time. So in terms of any earnout or deferred consideration, this is another thing to look at. You know, you have you have a given deal. Fifty million is being paid. How much of that fifty million is actually just paid up front into the seller's hands, so to speak? Um, generally, it's not the case that if you have a particular um, deal that everything is just handed over on closing, nothing going into escrow, nothing deferred, no no earnout. So, the first thing to say around the earnout and deferred consideration, when we talk about an earnout, we're talking about something that is not guaranteed. A deferred consideration, where it's, it's really just a, a completely guaranteed purchase price that will be paid a year later or 18 months later or whatever it might be. The difference with an earnout is that it's based on profits or performance. So if you're a, a seller, say an individual or a group of management sellers that are, are, are staying with the business, an earnout would be a fairly common thing that you'd see because it's a way for the buyer to incentivize you to make sure the business performs well in the two years, say, following closing. Um, so to look at how, in all those deals we've acted on over 15 months, how this works out, we've seen in 41% of the deals either an earnout or a deferred consideration, which is really high, I think. You know, it's, it's nearly half of these deals, therefore, not all of the purchase price is being paid up front. Um, and we saw, on that's 41%, 
it's only just over a quarter of the deals that we had a full payment on closing with no escrow at all. So that's, that's very low. And again, full payment subject to escrow, but nothing else is, is just over that amount, is 31%. And I think this really underlines what I've just said in terms of the escrow. Nearly half of the deals that we advised on had an escrow account. So some of the money not being handed over at closing it was intended for the set, you know, it's, it's, it's cash that's intended for the sellers, but the, for some reason, and I'll get to that in a second, some of that money was put into escrow and wasn't released at closing. And that's very, very common in, in the deals that, in terms of what we're seeing. And in terms of percentage of purchase price, I won't get into too much detail, but we're not talking half the consideration being put into escrow. We're talking about the most common stat you'll see there is six to 10% of the purchase price going into escrow. So on, a, on, on a, five, a 50 million deal, you might be talking about three, four, five million going into escrow would be what we tend to see. But as you can see, it's, it's completely spread out in terms of the percentage of the consideration you'd expect to see in escrow. And I think that the, the main thing you would ask, I suppose, in terms of if there is an escrow, why? Why is that? And the interesting thing I think we saw this year compared to previous years is just how mixed the reason for the escrow account was. Um, and you can see the, the kind of other statistic here. So in 31% of these, there was just some unusual, you know, different type of reason for having an escrow. And in this, that sort of thing that, that came up was a change in legislation. So there was an expected change in legislation, say, in a particular deal where the buyer might have been saying, well, if this, if this piece of legislation is actually enacted, it's going to have a, an impact on the target, and therefore there's a whole uh, an escrow on that point. The traditional reason why you would have had an escrow was to satisfy claims out of the warranties and indemnities, and it's 46% of the deals that was why, where there was an escrow, that was why there was an escrow. Um, for about a quarter of them, it was a mixture of different things, including completion accounts, deferred consideration, that sort of thing. So I talked previously about just how many deals are actually subject to some sort of deferred consideration or earnout. You can see from this, over a quarter of these transactions actually had an earnout. So that meant that that's um, you know subject to performance, more money will be paid. So if, if profits hurt, hit a certain level, um, EBITDA hits a certain level, there are different mechanisms, of course, more money will be paid by the buyer. I think it's 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 definitely worth remembering when you negotiate an earnout, um, it's, it's, it's more difficult for us to ascertain stats as to quite how many of these earnouts eventually get, end up getting paid. But generally, if there is an earnout, it doesn't tend to get satisfied, unfortunately, and, and no more money is paid. That's, that's what we tend, that's our experience. But a lot of deals, you can see how, how it ends up happening. You have a, a, a kind of... Um, aggressive and ambitious targets or, or, or growth projections being given by a seller or a management team prior to the deal, a buyer says, okay, well, if you actually hit those, we'll pay an extra extra pile of cash down the road. And, and it's very difficult for a seller to say to, to back away from that then. So like I say, over a quarter of these deals had an earnout, which is pretty high. Um, and the period of the earnout, you can see, is, is really spread out between one and a half years to kind of um, three to five years. And in some instances, it was more of a kind of uncertain period contingent on a, on a particular event happening, such as that change in legislation that I talked about. So gap between signing and closing. Again, just before the, the presentation, I was having discussions with, with different people who are going through this at the moment. 
the period between signing an M&A transaction and closing it, um, there might be different reasons for that. The most common ones are either you need to do a, a notification to the CCPC because it hits the competition thresholds and the turnover thresholds, or you'll be applying to the CBI for consents, which, we, um, which, which both can be very involved processes. We're involved in quite a few of those at the moment where a deal has signed and we're waiting to close it and it can take a long time and it can be a lot of protracted back and forth um, questions. Um, in terms of the deals that form part of this study, um, nearly half of them had a split signing and closing. Um, in order to actually hit the competition thresholds, you need both the, the buyer and the, the target group to be hitting a certain turnover threshold, uh, 10 million now, although during the period of this, these deals, it, it was less than 3 million up to the end of 2018. So, you know, if you have a US buyer, which we'd advise in a lot of deals where there's an international buyer that doesn't have existing turnover in Ireland, so despite these deals being large, some of them didn't require a, a notification. I think, once you have a split signing and closing, it can become the most negotiated aspect of a transaction. So, you know, in, in terms of when there was a split signing and closing, we tended to see warranties being repeated at closing. So that was three quarters of these deals. And then where there was repeated warranties, we tended to see a supplemental disclosure letter right. So that was in, in, in the vast majority of those. And one other thing to say, on, on, in terms of these transactions, we tended to have a material adverse change provision in these, in these um, deals. So two-thirds of the ones that had a split sign in closing had a material adverse change provision, which meant that there was a right for the buyer to walk away if a material adverse change happened in the target group. And obviously that gives rise to all sorts of debates about what material adverse change actually is, and it can mean different things. But there was a MAC in two-thirds of those, and it meant different things every time, really. Um, we tended to see, um, and I think this is quite a, I would say this is quite a surprising um, statistic, but it's one that has been becoming increasingly extreme in, in the three um, iterations we've run of this M&A Trends study. So you'll all be aware of, of, you know, in every single one of these deals, there would be a suite of warranties, anything from 10 pages to 30 pages of, of, of or, or longer sometimes, of statements of fact about the target company, warranties. Whereas indemnities are different. They're where a buyer finds an issue during the negotiations or is aware of an issue about the target group and wants euro for euro protection around that and it's negotiated into the contract. 86% um, of these deals had specific indemnities in them on top of the warranties. So that's kind of just a function of due diligence and it's, it's what we're seeing in our deals, as I say. Um, and there tended to be some sort of limitation, whether time or financial, on those indemnities. Um, and there tended to be a tax deed as well. <coughs> Definitely this is one, um, what limitation of liability and, and time limitations is one thing that we have seen a big change of in, in terms of the market. So time limitations on the warranties have got a lot shorter in recent years. And I think we've seen a development on that even in the last year when you look at the, the study that we carried out at the beginning of, of, of 2018 versus this study, um, what we're seeing in terms of the general warranties, so that's the business warranties, over half of them had a limitation period of 12 to 18 months, which would have been quite unusual a number of years ago. Typically, you would have seen a two-year limitation as a matter of, of, of course, and now it's come right the way down to, to, to this 12 to 18 months, and you do still see you know, about a third of them in the two-year period. 
But that's the general warranties, I think. Then there's the tax warranties and the fundamental warranties. And for mo mostly on the kind of title and capacity warranties, you wouldn't see any limitation at all, although then it's, it's, it's a matter of um, whether it's a deed or a contract, and it could be 12 years or six years as a result of that. Tax warranties, you tend to see sort of um, five years or something beyond that even, and sometimes it's, 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 it's quite long, but we tend to see something around the five to six year period. Um, one thing to mention in all of these trends is that US norms have, have definitely come in to the market, and we could give a full presentation on what that means in terms of how our deal terms are being um, affected by that. Um, one thing that's that's quite that stands out on that is is that in in terms of our warranties that we that we give in an Irish share purchase agreement, it tends to be on a normal kind of contractual damages basis where you have to prove a diminution of value in the target company to actually recover, and and that's that's the basis on which your losses are are calculated. Um, that's very different to how they do things over in the U.S. In the U.S., they calculate their all warranties are given on an indemnity basis in a typical deal. So sometimes in a transaction where there's a US buyer, you tend to see that they, they just won't look at any other way of considering the warranties. They want all warranties given on an indemnity basis. And I think it's, it's worth highlighting here. So the vast majority of, the, of our deals were not, did not have warranties given on an indemnity basis. But the fact that it was 15% shows that it was a significant number of transactions actually had that, um, had that sort of way of um, adjudicating the warranties. We, um, I won't spend too much time on the de minimis and basket. We, as a matter of course, there was a, a minimum threshold which you had to get over in order to bring warranties as you'd expect. Um, we did always have a limitation of liability in terms of warranties in the commercial warranties, the business warranties and the tax warranties. Interestingly, in exactly half of the transactions, you had a, a cap on liability for the fundamental warranties. So that's, I think it's worth, whenever if you're doing an M&A transaction, the three types of warranties are very, very different in the way you think about the limitations. And you know, in terms of what the liability would be, I think the way we would always think about it, the, the maximum liability under the warranties, it's a percentage of the purchase price. And if you go back again 10 years, I mean, you would expect that every deal, your, your, your maximum liability cap under the warranties would be the purchase price. No longer is that the case at all. So I think um, for business warranties, less than half of the deals that we advised on in this period had a, had a, had a cap right up at the purchase price. Um, ten, between 10 and 50% of the purchase price was about as normal as that. Um, and then you see a spread of 0 to 10%, even on perhaps some of the larger deals, you might see quite a low cap. And again, this shows you, I mean, in terms of these, um, the business warranties, which are kind of shown in, in, in wine or purple here, tax warranties in blue and the fundamental warranties in orange, you can see how differently the three are thought of in terms of what your cap will be. And I think there's, I, I'm kind of um, conscious of not spending too much longer, and we will take questions at the end. Um, I think we, we did see warranty and indemnity insurance on some transactions. It's something that we see considered on almost every transaction, and in some of them, in some of the transactions, ultimately a, a policy is not taken out. Um, and I think we, you know, it's 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 still on M and A transactions. It's something that isn't 
we don't see it on, on, on the majority of transactions or anything like that, but it's something that's becoming increasingly common all the time. Another thing that's become more common in the market is general disclosure of the data room against the warranties. So what that means is that as a seller, if you've disclosed something properly in the data room, it will qualify the warranties. And we saw that in about 20% of the transactions. Um, I'm not going to say anything further now. If there's any anything um, to discuss, I suppose we can do that. Um, we can we can do that at the end. I know William's got got a bit to discuss on the um, warranty and indemnity insurance, um, but I'll I'll leave it there on that basis. Thank you very much. Um, thanks, Rob. Um, as, as David mentioned, I think everybody's probably aware of uh, who, who are involved um, day to day or even um, uh, uh, infrequently, uh, most people will be aware of the availability of warranty and indemnity insurance as a product and that it's really been used across all sectors now. And, and while it, it's not quite a commodity as such, it, it really is uh, an agenda item um, for at the outset of any sales process. Um, and particularly so in auction processes. Um, so I suppose what I want to do today is rather than going through the anatomy of uh, W&I policies and how they work and, and, and how uh, terms of policy work, uh, uh, I, I want to focus more on the innovations and the trends that we're seeing um, now in the market in more recent years. Um, but I think it's worth refreshing on a few of the fundamentals before uh, we go there. Uh, and so just to uh, 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 highlight, the WNI insurance is, is provided to either a buyer or a seller uh, for loss arising out of breach of representation, warranty, or even an indemnity uh, uh, provided in the context of an acquisition of a company or asset. Um, what it does is it covers unknown or unforeseen risks only. So it really pays out for uh, breaches caused by the seller's innocent misrepresentation or innocent non-disclosure. Um, certainly on a buy-side policy, there's no requirement to pursue the seller before claiming under the policy. You claim directly against the insurer. Uh, and it's also important to emphasize and keep in mind that of the importance of, of due diligence and a proper disclosure exercise. So insurers will always want to see that the parties are transacting on the basis that insurance isn't being used and that you have to carry out the full due diligence, uh, uh, negotiating of warranties and eliciting of disclosures from the seller in the usual way so that all of the risks are, are properly ventilated and understood. And an insurer will want to see that that happens. Um, as a bit of a history buff, I always like to look at the, the history of these things. And coming of age might be too grandiose a term for something as turgid as, as W&I insurance. But um, just to give you a, a brief history, uh, uh, it was introduced to the market about 30 years ago, uh, originating in the US and UK. Typically, it was structured as a, as a, a sell-side policy. So uh, the buyer would claim against the seller under the SPA, and then the seller, as the insured party, would uh, subsequently claim under the policy. Um, but initially, it was a, a highly priced tool with, with some questionable coverage. Uh, policies were generally off the shelf, uh, uh, unwieldy with broad exclusions uh, and not subject to negotiation or tailored to the particular uh, circumstances 
of the transaction. There were a small number of insurers in the market and there was quite a lengthy uh, underwriting process which tended to delay transactions. Uh, uh, policies were generally written by um, directors and officers, directors and officers, insurer underwriters, uh, um, who had really uh, uh, limited knowledge of how any transaction worked. And for for these reasons, uh, WNI insurance was was reached for only as a last resort when all other options had been exhausted. Um, but now I think it can be said that the the, the the um, W9 insurance has has advanced and developed uh, very well. Uh, I think the tipping point was the 2008-2009 crisis, uh, uh, where the uh, movement or interest in W9 insurance really started uh, to take hold. It was driven primarily by um, private equity and other financial sponsors who were looking to get a clean exit from their divestments and looking to avoid long tails on liability. Uh, and also the market moved forward in terms of recruitment of M&A lawyers and tax lawyers from private practice to better understand the way M&A deals were done and how insurance could dovetail more effectively with the uh, M&A process. So I think now you could say that, that um, W&I premiums are more reasonably priced. Uh, uh, there's a much more fast-tracked underwriting process which can happen in deal time. Uh, typically, it's structured as a buy-side policy uh, and will be specifically uh, uh, bespoke. Uh, effectively, policies are bespoke and negotiated to the particular transaction and requirements of the parties. Uh, and also, there's quite an availability of cover. Um, the market now, it's, it's a very large market with insurers uh, offering uh, and syndicating uh, policies and and uh, and and underwriting um, uh, and underwriting underwritten amounts. So I think we're, you, you generally see about I think a statistic was released that there's over 300 million uh, of cover available per per transaction. So <clears throat> just to bring you through a, a few of the uh, differentials between uh, uh, buy side and sell side policies. Um, uh, so. The differences really uh, don't turn on uh, who pays the premium, but rather it's the strategic use of the product uh, uh, that are the key differentials or distinguishing features between buy-side and sell-side policies. Um, uh, certainly, as you'll see from the slide, um, in terms of prevalence, buy-side policies are much more common, representing about 95% of all policies, uh, less, much less so um, sell-side policies, which are only about 5%. Um, not to bring you through each of the, 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 the points here, um, you'll, you'll get copies of these slides if you want to look at them in more detail after the, the, um, the, the event, but uh, uh, certainly uh, in terms of strategic use, uh, in a competitive auction process, a WNI policy can be used to good effect to differentiate a bid from that of other bidders on terms other than price. So effectively, uh, a buyer or a bidder can offer uh, lower liability caps and shorter limitation periods uh, when presenting its bid to the sellers in order to make the bid a lot more attractive to the seller. It also uh, assuages, uh, the buyer might also use a, a, um, a WNI policy where it might be concerned about the uh, strength of the covenant of the seller. Uh, so would remove the question of whether uh, the, the, the company is or will continue to be a company of substance where it puts in place a WNI policy to address its risk under the warranties or, or, or covenants under the tax deed. Uh, so I suppose 
put that against uh, a potential claim against a insurer who's got a secure financial rating, usually treble A, uh, and, and that would probably uh, be a much better position for a buyer to be in rather than suing perhaps in a, a remote jurisdiction where it doesn't know or is not familiar with uh, the particular rules of, of that jurisdiction or isn't confident of making a successful claim against the seller in that jurisdiction. On sell side policies, uh, again, much less common, but um, a, a seller policy might be arranged to cover residual liabilities that the seller might have in respect of different or historic transactions where a fund, for example, is, has done a, a divestment and is looking to wind up but has time of the clock uh, for tax survival periods or, or warranty survival periods. Uh, uh, it, it might look to uh, put in place a sell side policy to address those li potential liabilities. Uh, and also, uh, this can help free up um, sales proceeds for investments or, or return to investors. Um, so, uh, I want to talk about some key exclusions, uh, uh, and just not to bring you through all of them, but really the devil is in the, de the detail when it comes to general exclusions from a WNI policy, and it's always been important for lawyers and clients alike to understand and try to minimise the scope and impact of these exclusions uh, as much as possible. Um, but in recent years, uh, we're seeing that WNI insurance are, uh, because of competitive forces, um, policy enhancements and more bespoke insurance solutions, for example, specific indemnity policies are becoming more increasingly available. Uh, so what we're seeing is that insurers are in a position to extend insurance cover for matters that historically were um, either uninsurable or, or were simply uh, prohibitively uneconomical to, to insure uh, before, before this time. Um, but the catch is, of course, there's usually a cost implications to this. So there'll usually be uh, uh, an increase in the premium where you are looking to extend or you're en enhance your cover under a WNI policy. So I thought it's worth identifying some typical exclusions uh, uh, from cover and then show you in the next slide how insurers are gradually moving into the realms of, of, of uh, offering uh, um, um, cover for those uh, items that were typically exclusions or uh, w within a policy. So some typical exclusions you might be familiar with are, are certainly the overarching one is, is known issues. So where a buyer is considering a WNI policy, it, it needs to understand that the, the gaps in cover uh, are where policies exclude liability for any and all matters known to a, a buyer. Um, and also another key, uh, key exclusion to be aware of is that knowledge qualifies claims under the tax deed. So to the extent that a buyer is aware of a tax issue, uh, it can't claim against a WNI policy that extends cover to uh, a tax deed. So that wouldn't ordinarily be the case. Absent the WNI policy, you'd, you'd be able to, no matter the knowledge of the buyer, you'd be claim, in a position to claim under the tax covenant. But that isn't the case where your WNI policy extends cover to, the, to a tax deed. So that is a, a significant gap in cover to be aware of. Um, uh, WNI policies also won't cover um, uh, defects arising in, in the period between signing and completion. So if the seller agrees to repeat the warranties on, on completion and you accept the policy on signing, uh, those uh, any defects arising in the interim period uh, won't come within cover. And then there are certain unknown matters or categories of, of risk which are typically fall outside 
of cover uh, and, and are uh, generally excluded. Um, and here you're talking about GDPR, reorganizations, product liability, uh, uh, certain tax issues are, are always identified as, as being outside of cover and anything to do with, with criminal fines or, or penalties. Um, so in, so um, in, in this slide, I just wanted to give you some examples of, of innovations and, and in examples of, of enhancements, which, um, which, are, uh, which insurers are now uh, willing, to, willing to offer. Um, uh, and in terms of the uh, excess, so insurers now will underwrite certain um, assets or certain sales on the basis of no, there being no excess. So this is the amount that the seller would ordinarily be expected to bear before the policy is engaged. Uh, uh, so a buyer, it, it, usually this is uh, extended to just certain categories of assets, non-operational assets, for example, real estate uh, and, and renewable assets, uh, uh, which are potentially in, in construction. So non-operational assets usually have the benefit of, of, the, of an offer of, 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 uh, of no excess. And so a buyer in this instance would be able to claim for the first euro uh, under the policy. Uh, so it's the first euro basis for recovery. Um, a buyer can also seek to extend uh, time periods uh, under a WNI policy, so it, where it hasn't been able to negotiate uh, a, 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 a long enough um, limitation periods with the seller, can seek to extend this under the WNI policy, and also in terms of quantum, the, the insured amount, you can top up uh, uh, the, the liability, you can top up your WNI cover to give you that additional comfort that you can claim uh, above the, um, the seller, uh, the seller uh, limitation uh, amount. Um, another uh, innovation that's, uh, that's become recently available is the uh, cover for defects arising between signing and completion. That is uh, an item that insurers are willing to uh, explore, um, but and, and so and so there, there there can be cover for these kind of risks. But typically, there is a very uh, significant um, uh, uh, cost implication to this. So I think you're talking about ten to fifteen percent of the premium uh, of additional premium per week for this type of cover. Um, and then also we're seeing uh, uh, synthetic warranties and tax deeds. So this is where you negotiate this, the warranties and tax covenant directly with the insurer, uh, and the, uh, the the warranties and tax deed don't come within the, the, the transaction perimeter with the seller. So effectively, they're not included in the in the SPA or any of the transaction documents. They're negotiated directly with the with with the insurer. Um, so. Again, this is more of a takeaway uh, uh, for, for looking at later, but I thought it would be useful to set out um, from, from, from kickoff call to policy inception, the various steps that will be taken, and also the documents that you'll need to uh, look at uh, and agree um, when, when you're thinking about uh, uh, incepting a WNI policy for, for your transaction. Um, so uh, uh, the documents are all, all listed there, but I think what I sort of want to focus on is, is timing. So uh, as you'll see, these are really just indicative dates, but uh, generally WNI policy from the first call to the reaching out to the broker to incepting a policy can be done anywhere between two, two to three weeks. So that's, that's pretty fast. Uh, and I think a key thing to, 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 
consider when you are uh, looking to accept a WNI policy is the broker and how quickly the broker can can assist, how, how responsive he is, and, and how um, connected he is with, with, with the market. Um, so, um, in terms of uh, making a warranty claim, um, you know, by all accounts, and, and just from speaking to brokers generally, uh, uh, it there is a, a, a re it is a relatively straightforward process when you're looking to claim, uh, which I've set out below the various hurdles that you need to meet. Uh, um, but uh, I think a key question is what's the track record, or in in relation to insurers paying out on a claim, and, and it's a fair question, as in in reality, uh, warranty claims are relatively rare events. And insurers don't exactly uh, jump to talk about uh, paid out losses. But from discussing with brokers and, and just learning anecdotally about it, I think the process is, is pretty simple, as I set out in the table. But uh, I think it's uh, calculation and agreement on the quantum of loss is, is often the sticking point. Uh, and you know, I think insurers, where it's clear that uh, a defect comes within the scope of a, of a warranty and it's covered by insurance, I, I don't think there'll be any insurers won't try to uh, debate that where it's clear, but they will look at quantum and uh, and the amount of damages that are due to the buyer uh, uh, where they're looking to claim against for, for, for a breach of warranty or a breach of tax covenant. Um, I think uh, they'll generally want to investigate quite closely and bring in uh, experts to try and quantify quantify the loss. Um, uh, I think it's worth if, if, if you're ever in that unhappy situation uh, of making a claim, involve the broker. Uh, the relationship is important there. Uh, uh, and I think uh, although the M&A insurance market is, is uh, uh, growing, it's still a relatively small community. And I think if an insurer failed to respond as expected and pay out, uh, I, I think uh, uh, word would travel pretty quickly uh, um, that insurer you know, has failed to respond as expected. So. Um, uh, I think it would also probably be naive to think that insurers won't try and defend a claim, and um, they will. But I think there are also certain commercial pressures can, that can be brought to bear on an insurer, and, uh, and certainly that would be linked to the broker. So an insurer will always be looking to its revenue stream um, from, from brokers referring, uh, um, uh, looking for um, price indications and policy indications of whether they want to underwrite uh, a, a policy. So I think uh, insurers will have one eye on protecting their, their income stream. Um, so it's just some key takeaways uh, in w &I. Uh, um, I Look, I think boundaries are, are consistently being pushed. Uh, coverage is now broader, and, and very few sectors uh, uh, and jurisdictions are off limit. Off limits, uh, pricing has generally come down, and and excess and attachment points have have fallen. Um, uh, WNI claims are generally on the rise. Uh, um, from looking at the, some of the statistics, um, I think here you've got some sophisticated repeat buyers who understand when they can and cannot claim. Uh, uh, who are, you know, I suppose, uh, uh, learned in in the in the art of, of of making warranty claim and understanding insurance. So they these are the type of players who are using it to good effect. Um, it seems to statistics also seem to indicate that the larger the transaction value or and the insured amount, the more likely the claim. So the bigger they are, the harder they fall. Uh, and over fifty percent of claims are made in in the first twelve months. Um, 
I think the the uh, most the clay the, the areas of warranties where claims are made are made most frequently are the financial statements, and I think um, when you have uh, an audit post completion, which generally happens might happen within the first twelve months after the deal, this will generally ventilate any issues uh, that are that that that, that might form the basis of a warranty claim. So that's why I think 50% of the claims are made in the first uh, 12 months. The financial statements warranties seem to be a mark for, for most of the claims. Again, as I said, uh, synthetic warranties and tax deeds are a feature. Um, uh, a lot of them use in receiver sales and liquidator sales, but in the absence of there being a disclosed, specific disclosure process um, on the part of the seller, they're, they're, the, the, uh, to compensate for that, there has to be a thorough DD. So insurers will want to see that the scope of your due diligence is quite wide and, and quite comprehensive. Um, startup insurance is also emerging as a feature. Um, uh, so these cover warranties for a, a founder, uh, where a founder might be required to give uh, a, um, warranties to a, an investor, for example, a, a venture capital fund. But these tend to be more expensive given given the risk profile, and just more generally enhancements. Um, you know the various categories of enhancements which I referred to in my previous slides. Um, you know the, the pressure seems to be coming from the U.S. Um, U.S. clients generally pushing for terms and enhancements that are available in the U.S. Um, for example, the, the indemnity basis for recovery uh, under warranties. So. Um, it's it's really uh, uh, competitive pressures are from the US are coming to bear on the London insurance market and the London insurance market has had to react and offer similar or better terms and also innovate to try and uh, uh, to, to try and maintain uh, a business I think uh, it's fair to say that probably premiums have been falling um, uh, with you know there's more competition more entrance now I think there's over 30 uh, uh, market players or underwriters in the London insurance market now. There are more specialised uh, underwriters in areas such as uh, addressing tax risks. So I think we're seeing we're li seeing limits of around 0.5% um, to 1.7% of the insured amount. Um, so that's the kind of the range of the premium. Um, you know, I, th I think um, in terms of you know how uh, what, what is the minimum amount that you can have covered for uh, warranty and indemnity insurance, um, you're looking at probably about five million is probably the, the the lowest you can you can go, where below which it would be really un uneconomical to try to incept a, a, a policy. And and just just to give you an example, we we recently had a quote for five million of cover, and so uh, the, the I think the, the cost base for that comprised about forty five to fifty five thousand of premium. Um, 10,000 uh, euro for uh, the underwriter's fee, which is effectively um, the you're, you're paying for the underwriter's legal fees to do the due diligence and write the policy. Uh, broker's fees can be anywhere between 10 to 20,000 on at that level and plus taxes. So you're looking look at anywhere between 65 and 75, 80 for, for the, that type of cover. But that's as low as you can go. And obviously, the higher you, you go in terms of your insured amount, um, you know, the broker's fees will be higher uh, and, and the premium will be higher as well. Um, so really it's factors uh, you know, feeding into um, the premium level 
are, are many factors, uh, um, in, including the industry sector, uh, uh, geographic location of the target, uh, and the identity of the party. So these all feed in, but that's generally the range that, that we're seeing. Um, so uh, I'm going to conclude on that and hopefully gives you a flavour of, of what's happening in, in WI at the moment. Thanks very much, William, um, for taking us through, I suppose, what is uh, an evolving uh, product uh, and one that we as M&A lawyers have had to really familiarise ourselves with. So when the clients come to us uh, and ask us to do a transaction, this is something that we, we really have to know about. And, and, and it's been, uh, I suppose, a journey uh, where we've had to educate ourselves on it and, and know as much almost as, as the brokers do. Uh, because at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's that balance of risk uh, and, and, and it's understanding the nuances of the um, particular insurance contract itself. Thank all of you for coming along today. Uh, if any of your organisations would like uh, to get into a little bit more detail on this, we're happy to go out and give the, say, the M&A presentation. There's a lot more detail and substance behind it. Uh, and similarly with the warranty and indemnity insurance, because they're, they're, they're kind of distinct uh, I suppose, presentations in themselves. Um, so without further ado, I'd like to thank both Robert and William, uh, who uh, made fantastic presentations this morning. Thanks very much, guys. And uh, put your hands together for them. Thank you.